If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the History Extra podcast, brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Matt Alton. Today's podcast guest is the historian Kerry Greenidge, author of Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Munro Trotter, one of the books shortlisted for this year's Cundle Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. I caught up with Kerry to find out more about her biography of a pioneering black newspaperman. I have to confess that I hadn't heard of the subject of your new book before I started reading it. Is that a common thing? Is he well known in America, but not over here? That's actually an excellent question. I found that he's not very well known, um, except amongst, you know, African-American historians sometimes. Um, so he's really not well known. There was one biography that was written in 1970, and that was the last one that was written. Um, and so not a lot has been written about William Monroe Trotter. Not a lot has been written about, um, I know, uh, <laughs> for those who are not in, you know, outside of um, the United States, not a lot has been written about Boston and New England and uh, civil rights um, during this era. So he really is um, somebody who I was trying to reconstruct their lives because I thought his life and his works were uh, missing in the scholarship. When did you first hear about his story? So in the um, one of the afterwards I say in there is that my uh, grandparents actually were activists in Boston, going back to the 1950s. And so I grew up hearing stories about black activism in New England and just generally. Um, And the first time I heard the name, or I recall hearing the name, is when I was about seven years old and my grandfather was watching TV and he said, you know, um, if Trotter were around, 
we basically wouldn't have these racial issues that were happening in the city at the time. Um, and through that, I, my grandmother wrote the name down for me. I remember being in second grade and she said, you know, he's somebody who was a race man. That was the term that was given um, back then. Um, and that I should study him. And so since then I had kind of, he was kind of in the back of my mind. And then in college, I found that original biography. I read it, you know, in one weekend and I thought, well, why hasn't anybody written about him, right, beyond just this one book, um, which was a good book, but I was like, I, why isn't there anything else? And so when I went to graduate school, he was really somebody who I wanted to concentrate on in terms of my look at black politics and um, black political radical imagination. For listeners who might not be familiar then, we should probably put his life into the context of the wider political situation in the States at the time. So he was born in 1872. What was the situation in the 1870s? So by 1872, it was in the midst of Southern Reconstruction. So the American Civil War ended 1865. There is a period of radical reconstruction in which the radical Republican Red Congress in the United States over the veto of um, the virulently racist President Andrew Johnson um, passed uh, the form of the Constitution that we know today, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which basically created in the United States um, this idea that if you were born in the United States, you had certain rights underneath the law um, that could not be dictated by race um, and could not be dictated by where you lived in the states um, that were really underneath federal law. Um, Throughout the 1870s, and I go through this in the book, is a period in which the southern states primarily, but really across the United States, there was a backlash against the granting of rights, um, civil rights to African Americans under the law. And by 1872, the year that William Monroe Trotter was born, um, there was a um, amelioration, a relationship between Northerners who had been very sympathetic to African Americans and Southerners. And basically their agreement um, politically was that African American people um, should no longer be helped by the federal government um, and that therefore they had to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and um, didn't sort of deserve all of the things that the country had fought for in the Civil War. Um, so he's burned at this very, very tumultuous moment. Um, He grew up in Massachusetts, which um, as a state had this long tradition of um, radical abolition against slavery and also a small yet very politically active black community that had fought for certain rights under the law. And so Trotter grew up in in Boston and in in Massachusetts at a time when Massachusetts was um, seen as anathema to the rest of the United States. So Massachusetts passed its own Civil Rights Act in 1865. Um, it did not have lynching, which was this horrible sort of crime that I describe in the book, um, mob violence against African-Americans. And it was seen as, I use the phrase Mecca of the Negro, which was what it was referred to by many African-Americans at the time, because if you migrated to Boston, the feeling was you could at least receive rights before the law and chance to create your life. So he's growing up in Massachusetts at this moment at the same time that across the country there is a rapid deterioration of African-American rights. Uh, There's the rise of um, racial violence. There's the rise of disenfranchisement. So southern governments in South Carolina, Mississippi, across the south um, employed uh, white mobs that would go in and attack African-Americans and um, force them from political power. Um, And um, the rise of lynching, of course, across the country, segregation So southern states started to enact um, state constitutions that legally segregated African-American people um, in public. And so 
he's seeing that as a child and as an adolescent growing up in Massachusetts, but he wasn't necessarily experiencing it directly um, because he was in a, a, um, a state that uh, defied the federal uh, guidelines. Thank you. Um, how important were the experience of his father and of his father's generation in shaping his worldview? Yeah, William Monroe Trotter's father was James Trotter, who was a lieutenant in the Civil War. He was one of only five commissioned black lieutenants in the Civil War. And James Trotter himself was born enslaved in Mississippi, escaped, really harrowing escape with his mother and his younger siblings when he was a child to Ohio, which was a free state. And once his mother died, um, grew up basically on his own within this very tightly knit black uh, activist community in Southern Ohio. And so James Trotter, um, through that experience, and particularly through his background, um, became somebody who did not countenance white racism um, in any of its forms. He was very critical, James Trotter was very critical of, of white liberal-leaning people in New England who kind of um, were very self-congratulatory in terms of the way they thought they handled race. Um, and James Trotter was somebody who was critical because he argued that um, African Americans had been sold out by the Republican Party at the time, um, and that in order to regain many of the civil rights that were steadily being lost, African Americans needed to ally themselves with whatever party was allying itself with workers in the United States, people who were um, who were not allied with the Republican Party. And so he became a Democrat in the 1880s at a time when that was really um, an anomaly amongst African Americans, although as I go in the book, uh, there were a strong group of black people who agreed with James Trotter. And so from his father, really, William Monroe Trotter got that sense of political independence. He also was constantly imbued with um, history and told that um, what was happening in the United States was not natural. So he was told, you know, that this was a backlash against uh, black people receiving their freedom. It wasn't um, something that happened because black people themselves were in any way uh, responsible for um, the violence and the disfranchisement that um, um, surrounded them. And um, as you say, he um, inherited some of his father's intellect and he went to Harvard University in 1891. Are there any university experiences that you think particularly also shaped his worldview? Yes, I talk about in the book that when he's at, so he enters Harvard in 1891, he's one of a handful of African-American students who attended um, elite um, New England colleges, Brown, Amherst, uh, Harvard, the usual suspects as we have um, now. And he really um, uh, thrived on being part of this black community. The problem that he encountered was that um, as federal rights are receding, that often bled into Massachusetts. Um, and sort of this uh, cradle of, of liberty that it claimed itself to be. And in 1893, one of his good friends named William Henry Lewis, who was a graduate of Amherst College and also a student at Harvard Law School, went to go get a haircut right before his spring graduation in 1893. The barber in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, refused to serve William Henry Lewis. And so Trotter is part of a group of graduate and undergraduate black students who um, forced the government of Massachusetts to uh, revise the state civil rights law so that it would include barber shops as well as um, this broad definition of outlawing segregation in public places. So this was really a galvanizing point for him, as I point in the book. He also, by the time he graduated from Harvard, uh, he graduated third in his class, never um, um, 
uh, ranked below third in his class, very, very bright, gets his master's degree within six months of getting his undergraduate degree, um, and he could not find a job in Boston. And he kept on seeing, as I described in the book, all of his um, white classmates, many of whom <laughs> were lower ranked than him in class, sort of picking up jobs right away. And he quickly realizes that the deterioration of rights, civil rights for African Americans in the United States um, had affected all facets of black life. Like So that, in other words, it wasn't enough just to live in um, Massachusetts. Um, it wasn't enough just that his family uh, appeared to be doing uh, financially and socially pretty well, but that uh, federal law had, had caused um, civil rights to deteriorate. You talk in the book a lot about the ways in which his views differed from some of his kind of prominent contemporaries. How, how did they differ and who are these other figures that are important to kind of sketch him against? So I, I think one of the things I tried to do in the book was point out that Trotter was a radical because he fundamentally believed that African-American people and indeed African-descended people across the, the world had to decide their own terms of liberation. And that basically that meant that anybody who was preaching or arguing that black people um, were backward, that they couldn't vote because they were had formerly been enslaved, that um, you know lynchings were somehow their fault, he argued that all of this was, was not true, right? And that the history of black people in the United United States was a history of constantly agitating for um, racial justice. And so in that way, he differed a lot from um, Booker T. Washington, who traditionally the literature, uh, the sort of historiography has said um, they were opposed to one another, and they were. Trotter's main criticism of Washington, as I discuss in the book, was that he saw Washington as selling out his people. Um, Washington uh, preached a notion of racial accommodation to the South. He, uh, Washington preached the idea that African Americans belonged in the South. One of his famous speeches says, you know, the Southern white man is the Negro's best friend. And this is at a time when there's lynching and there's horrendous violence across the South and disfranchisement. Um, and Washington was saying this um, as part of what is called the Tuskegee machine. It was a way that he was getting funding to create this phenomenal school um, called Tuskegee Institute, um, which became one of the most powerful Black-run institutions in the South. So Trotter's problem was that he pointed out that Washington was hypocritical, that he was doing this and spouting this rhetoric to gain money for the school and ultimately money for himself. And that he knew, Trotter would say Washington knew, that um, American racism was virulent and alive and well. So much so, as Trotter pointed out, Washington sent his children to be educated in New England, right? Would not send them to schools in Alabama. And so what Trotter's problem with that was that... uh, he, Washington, had been an imported leader. He was brought in and he was deemed a leader by white America and that the majority of black people, who he referred to as the genteel poor, um, were disgusted with the way that their rights had deteriorated since the Civil War and they were not um, aligning with Booker T. Washington as much as Booker T. Washington and, and the white press claimed. And then in 1901, he set up what became his life's work, didn't he? Um, Can you just talk us through the newspaper that he set up and the kind of things that it published, I suppose? 
Yeah, so the Boston Guardian was his newspaper. It originally appeared in November 1901. It ran in Boston uh, in some form all the way through the 1960s, although Trotter passed in 1934. And this newspaper appeared at a time when the press in the United States, um, if we think of it as being partisan now in, in 2020, was much like today, um, if not worse. So how the press worked was that you had two major um, newspapers that were run by uh, William Randolph Hearst. Those newspapers were designed to sell very cheaply, and they sold by sensationalism with the, you know, the tagline, the the front page. Um, through this, that meant that white newspapers often would subsidize financially black press. And so this is at a moment when black newspapers are ex are appearing all over the country. Any kind of small black community in the United States had some type of weekly that the black community published. But to keep that going, right, as we all know, um, in 2020, like a print weekly newspaper, the overhead cost to do that, right, is a lot of money back then as, in, as now. And so black newspaper editors were getting money funding from white uh, donors and often, more often than not, this squelched black dissent, right? And so if there was a lynching, say, in a town and the black town um, had a newspaper that exposed it, as happened in North Carolina in 1898, when white vigilantes um, went in and basically um, violently deposed the duly elected black government. When that happened, the black press tried to cover it. And instead, um, the white people came in, burned down the printing press. And um, the result was that then the new paper that came along was subsidized by white money that refused to publish um, the needs of the, the direct needs of the black community and published sort of the horrendous racism that was occurring at the time. So Trotter created the Guardian in 1901, and his famous uh, line from Shakespeare was "Hold a mirror up to nature." He basically said that the job of the press, particularly the black press was to uh, challenge power, was not to assume that the status quo, racial, economic, political, or otherwise, was the way it was supposed to be, and that um, he should, uh, I guess, you know, shine light in the darkness of what was actually occurring in the United States at a time when most mainstream white people, both most virulent racist, um, you know, Klansmen to the most, you know, um, apologetic white Northerner really argued that black people were, you know, um, um, subhuman, that they were poor because this was their nature, um, that uh, in some circles that emancipation had been a mistake, and that therefore what African Americans needed to do was just sort of build themselves up, and eventually once they did that, whites would come to their senses and would reward African Americans with rights before the law. And so Trotter's, the Guardian was really um, Trotter's um, um, acts against that uh, that notion, and also his way of employing um, African-American people themselves to argue about these issues and really gave a voice to black communities to write articles, to write um, um, editorials um, about what was actually happening in his in, in their towns and into in, their lives. And it didn't pull any punches either with white people or with the black establishment, did it? Exactly. Right. So he was he was very critical of Washington. Uh, he was very critical of President Theodore Roosevelt and the Republican Party. Um, he basically argued that Theodore Roosevelt had created what was called Lily Whiteism, which was a, a theory that the Republican Party, which had been concentrated in the American North and the American West, um, in order to 
continue its stronghold of the federal government had to um, appeal to white Southerners, right? Never mind that blacks were the most loyal Republican voting bloc and they were disenfranchised in the South. And so Theodore Roosevelt um, was one of the first presidents to really employ and put this into action, um, you know, standing by and watching as blacks were being disenfranchised, um, arguing through his secretary of state that black voting was a failure. This was a speech that was given uh, by Elahu Root, um, his secretary of state in 1903. And so he, he criticized Theodore Roosevelt. He also criticized Booker T. Washington. He criticized um, leaders of the African-American churches who often um, preached to their constituents to follow um, Booker T. Washington's line. He was very critical of this thing called the Afro-American Council, which was um, a group of uh, black um, community leaders who um, argued that there should be more civil rights, and yet Trotter's criticism of them was that um, they were a front for Booker T. Washington, so how many rights were they agitating for? So he really was um, somebody who, who argued and confronted power wherever, wherever it stood. Did this win him friends as much as enemies, and in which groups were those two sorts of people, I suppose? <laughs> well, as I say in the book, or as I say when I talk about the book, um, Trotter would probably be somebody who I, <laughs> who would not be a very pleasant person to be around just day to day, year by to year, because he was very um, um, committed to fairness and to aligning the rhetoric um, that he had about black self-determination and civil rights with your life. And so he would make friends. So for instance, with W.E.B. Du Bois, the famous um, Harvard uh, PhD, they were close throughout their life. Um, Trotter eventually dumped him because he accused um, W.E.B. Du Bois of liking um, uh, moderation and um, of being a favorite of white intellectuals in the North as opposed to serving the needs of black people. He basically accused Du Bois of being a snob. Um, um, he was very critical of, obviously, of Booker T. Washington, but also of, um, of male leaders who he believed were selling out their communities. And so he was somebody who made a lot of enemies. Um, he was somebody, though, by the time he died, right, was when he died immediately all of these tributes poured in from people who had been um, his ideological foes, um, who basically would argue that he um, was difficult, but he was entirely in earnest, as W.E.B. Du Bois said. He really believed um, that black people had to decide the future of um, justice in the United States. And his views spread much further than Boston. What prompted him to, to, to leave Boston to spread his views elsewhere? So one of the things that I point out in the book is that The Guardian um, was very popular across Black America, but also across um, the Caribbean and the Americas generally. So he was having uh, correspondents from Jamaica and Barbados and the Bahamas who were writing for the newspaper um, as early as 1902 and, and, and throughout its, its um, the duration of the newspaper. And so that gave it an appeal to working class African-descended people across the United States and the Caribbean. And so he founded something called the National Independent Political League, which argued that black people should be political independents. They should not align with any party. They should only align with the candidate that um, immediately addressed their civil rights, economic and political needs. Um, and so through that, he gained a lot of support amongst black communities, particularly in the American North. 
Um, he gained a lot of support for his protest against something called the Brownsville Affair in 1906, in which um, African-American soldiers were um, brutally attacked by white townspeople in Brownsville, Texas, and then summarily discharged from the military. That got him a lot of support amongst black people in the South and the Southwest. And so this is what drew him out of uh, Boston and Massachusetts and made him somebody who was not just a provincial leader. He became somebody who was really... Um, a um, appeal to um, black internationalism and black struggles um, throughout kind of the Atlantic world at the time. And he visited the White House a couple of times. Um, which presidents did he meet and what did he make of them? <laughs> so the most famous president that he met was Woodrow Wilson, who was a Democrat elected in 1912. Um, at the time, uh, African-Americans predominantly voted where they could vote for the Republican Party. And this was a carryover of Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln being a, a Republican and the Republican Party in the 19th century um, supporting anti-slavery. Um, but by 1912, Trotter and other leaders, including Du Bois, were arguing that the GOP took black voters for granted, that the GOP had done nothing basically since the 1870s for African-American rights, um, and that in particular, Theodore Roosevelt, um, who was um, preparing to run again underneath a new party, um, had betrayed African-Americans the most in the past kind of eight years of the country. And so uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was at the time president of Princeton University, running for president as um, um, a Democrat, um, had no history of uh, or lengthy history of um, legislating civil rights um, and was somebody who many black people, including Trotter, saw as, um, as Trotter said, a Moses of our people, right? He has a, the potential to be a different voice. And so for the first and only time in his life, Trotter urged black people to vote for Wilson, Wilson was elected, and of course, we know historically, Wilson was one of the most unapologetically white supremacist presidents in, in American history. Um, immediately when Wilson took office in 1913, he segregated the federal government. So in Washington, D.C. at the time, up until this point, Washington, D.C. for federal workers was integrated. So if you worked in a building um, and you were a black person or a white person, you didn't have any separate water fountains, any separate elevators, anything like that. And that had long been a thorn in the side of Southern segregationists who said, we come to D.C., we feel like the North is, um, um, as one said, pushing the Negro problem in our faces. And so immediately Woodrow Wilson segregates the federal government. And so Trotter immediately forms a group that went and confronted Woodrow Wilson at the White House. And their first meeting, Woodrow Wilson basically is apologetic. He says, you know, I did not realize that, you know, segregation was objectionable to black people. Um, it's not that bad of a thing. I apologize. They left. They then um, hear other reports of, of Wilson um, installing virulent, um, you know, um, Black, white racists from the South into top posts in the federal government. And so in his second meeting with Woodrow Wilson, he famously um, um, confronts him. And as I point out in the book, it was the first time in American history, and one of the only times in American history, that a group of black voters um, personally um, confront a sitting president in that president's, you know, home base in the White House and basically say, um, you have betrayed um, African-American people um, and how dare you and we are citizens of the United States, you have betrayed your citizens. And it really is this, this um, 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 monumental moment, I argue, in the book because it becomes sort of this folk um, 
folktale amongst African Americans across the United States, right? That Trotter um, goes and confronts the president. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was so insulted that he famously, you know, um, you know, backed away from the group, said that he would not meet with um, another black person unless that per black person um, was, you know, less confrontational than Trotter, um, and basically argued that he uh, that Woodrow Wilson um, was a Moses of the Negro people and that he knew what was best. So um, Trotter, this is sort of the most famous thing of him uh, confronting a sitting president, but he continued to consult with and confront uh, white politicians, um, uh, Massachusetts Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, for instance, um, William Howard Taft, um, really holding uh, people in power to account at a time when um, most white politicians, if they thought about black people at all, were told that, you know, black people should just be thankful for um, being allowed the dignity of, of you know, being seen as, as human beings. Still to come on the History Extra podcast determining what direction the society goes in is the people who are actually challenging from all corners, all sides, um, criticizing the, the powers that be and, and um, forcing it to reckon with the way that it um, treats its most vulnerable. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And some of his methods sound surprisingly modern. Can you talk us about how he protested the 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation? Yeah, so his, his main, I, I argue in the book that Trotter was really somebody who believed in mass protest. So that meant getting as many people as you could to confront seats of power. And so he begins doing that in 1902 in a very famous um, case of a fugitive who fled to Massachusetts from uh, North Carolina. And he just, he has um, every week in the Guardian, he rallies people through the churches in Boston and across New England to come to the governor's um, um, offices at the Massachusetts State House to confront them. And in 1915, by that point, Trotter was really known that this was one of his tactics, right, was that he would uh, form a fund or a rally through the newspaper so people would read about it, and then people would um, tell this and show this to people in their churches and in their nights clubs and all those types of things, and then they would meet and they would, um, and, and, and amass, you know, thousands of people confront the site of where an injustice had occurred. And so the film Birth of a Nation came out in 1915. Um, Trotter had been fighting against um, incarnations of this film since it came out um, in vaudeville in the early 1900s. So um, part of Birth of a Nation was that it had been released um, in um, different formats um, throughout um, since the 1890s. And Trotter pointed out that this was not just racist, a racist film, right? He really pointed out that it was dangerous because it argued that it was historically factual, right? And it was perpetuating the idea that African-American people deserve to be enslaved in the South, that the Ku Klux Klan 
a terrorist organization was not that bad, that it was out to sort of save and protect white people from black um, violence, and that uh, basically um, lynching and um, um, disenfranchisement of black people was was perfectly warranted. And so um, he stages a protest in Boston. He, um, you know, confronts the mayor of Boston at the time. Boston was known as a pretty puritanical city in terms of banning lots of things. So they would ban, you know, um, one play because the woman showed her ankles <laughs> on the stage, all these types of things. And so Trotter was pointing out, if anything should be banned, it's this film, which has sort of racial and political repercussions. The, um, and this sort of led to uh, countless protests at the, new, at the um, theaters in Boston. Um, eventually, the mayor um, did end up um, staying the showing of the film, um, and other cities across the United States followed suit. But Trotter, what made him distinct was his focus on the fact that this was a lie, right? That the way the film portrayed black people had no basis in fact, whereas other people who argued against the film, namely the NAACP, argued that, well, it was an opinion, right? Um, you, you know, censorship should probably happen, but why don't we just fund another film by black people to counter the truth of this film? And Trotter's very astutely pointed out that there is no basis for saying the Klan is a good organization um, and that um, that's the way the film should be attacked, not as a work of art that is being censored, but as a work of propaganda that was leading to um, further racial violence and political division. How did he end up at the uh, Versailles uh, Peace Conference? Oh, the Versailles Peace Conference. So he ends up there because during World War One, he is very much becoming radicalized by a group of young Caribbean migrants to the United States. Hubert Harrison, who came from the Caribbean and lived in Harlem, um, all of these people from the Caribbean and from elsewhere who are moving to the United States and who are really challenging um, the World War as a war that um, was consolidating white European world power and was um, exploiting working people of all races and all colors across the globe. And so Trotter um, creates something called the Liberty League with Hubert Harrison, and it was basically a group that was going to present the demands of the colored people, those are those world, their words, before the world. And if we think of World War I was really seen at the time as a moment when the world could reset itself, that was kind of the optimistic view. Um, pessimistic view, of course, was that the world had imploded and, you know, what was going to take its place in this new world order. And Trotter and his supporters were very much adamant that this was a moment to decolonize um, the world. This was a moment to finally um, bring racial justice as part of constitutional um, laws throughout the world. And so the Liberty League um, raises money amongst donors across the United States, who mostly working class donors who give money so that Trotter and the Liberty League can attend the Versailles Peace Conference. The uh, Wilson administration denied passports for all black um, people except for Du Bois and another black uh, uh, president of Tuskegee. And Trotter surreptitiously um, shaved off his signature mustache, got onto a boat in New York, uh, pretended to be a, um, a cook, landed in Paris. Of course, he's too late to actually go before the Versailles Peace Conference, but he did end up distributing this letter to the white press um, across um, England and uh, France. 
Um, and what this did was it sort of reignited this idea that the United States, which was seen as this hero coming in um, and helping the allies, had betrayed its own rhetoric um, and that African-Americans in the United States uh, deserved um, to uh, be part of sort of the new world order and that um, people of color across the world deserve to be decolonized. Um, the final years of his life are quite tragic um, and you describe them poignantly in the book. Um, what happened and why did he sort of descend into poverty? So one of the things I point out in the book is that because, as I mentioned before, black newspapers were funded mostly, um, before Trotter came along, mostly by um, philanthropists and white politicians. Trotter himself, uh, after his father died, um, inherited a fortune, about $20,000 in 1892 money. So that's a lot of money at the time. And it meant that he had enough money to um, publish what he wanted. And when the newspaper wasn't making money, to just pour his own money into it, in both the newspaper and into his lifestyle. And as we all know, that is not sustainable for a model to run a newspaper that's going to make money, right? And so it appeared every week from 1901 up through his death. Um, he was somebody who was not a businessman. In fact, there's there's good evidence, as I put on the book, that the newspaper itself just day to day was run by his wife and his sisters. And he was sort of the face of it and wrote most of the copy, but they were the ones who made it um, into this enterprise. And that by the 19th, 1920s, um, after his wife's death in 1918, Trotter really struggled with um, maintaining um, any type of lifestyle that that mimicked his earlier life. Um, he lost his house, uh, his beloved home that he purchased um, when he got married in the 1890s. He lost it. He had to be mortgaged a bunch of times. Um, he ended up um, suffering from a lot of health issues uh, that I, you know, speculate in the book had to do with sort of as much sort of psychological and emotional turmoil as much as physical turmoil. And by the late 1920s, he's in his 50s, um, and he sees a bunch of younger um, radicals kind of become much more um, um, famous than he is. Um, but people who really looked up to him as a leader, uh, A. Philip Randolph, for instance, um, Marcus Garvey for a time, all of these younger activists. And so as the 1920s um, continued, I point out in the book that as an activist, he was seeing a lot of the things he had fought for become the norm, but also he was seeing a lot of the things that he had been talking about in terms of white racial violence in the United States never be ameliorated in the way that he had wanted them to be. And so um, I would point out in the book that, you know, for any activist that can often be, if you don't have another outlet, a source of, of um uh, despair. And so with the stock market crash in 1929, Trotter is completely destitute. The, the, the Guardian, like most newspapers, only ran because his sister and his sister's husband um, made sure that it got out every week. The quality began to um, to decline, even though it, it was still popular in, in certain circles. You know, it wasn't the same kind of um, um, type of journalism it had been before. And with the Great Depression, Trotter um, had to move in with friends. You know, he's in his, you know, almost in his 60s at this point. Um, and not only that, he starts to see a lot of the um, racial progress that he took for granted in Massachusetts deteriorate. So the rise of segregation in Massachusetts and Boston, um, deepening income inequality, as we would now call it, but economic disparity. And so through that, Trotter really um, begins to lose a lot of, 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 um, of optimism um, in his life. 
And um, you say in the book that you think that he took his own life. Um, what happened? And is, is, is that different from the conventional view of what happened? Yeah, I think that the I, uh, many people kind of just within um, cir- certain circles of, of African-American scholars and particularly African-American public memories, this idea, well, he, he went up onto his roof the morning of his 62nd birthday, April 7th, 1934. He's living in, um, he's boarding with neighbors. The night before, his sister came to drop off copies um, for him to look over for the Guardian. He seemed confused, his sister said. He, at one point, he ran into a wall and fell over. Um, she, you know, told him to get some sleep. And the next morning he's found by his landlady um, up on the roof and having fallen over and basically onto the pavement pavement below. Um, Immediately his sister um, said that he had killed himself, right, and that she had been worrying, um, concerned about him. Um, And most people at the time when it sort of went out on the wires that this had happened, um, were devastated that he had killed himself because they had been recognizing his depression and his growing alienation over the past, you know, couple of years of the Great Depression. Um, what began to happen, though, is that then as now, um, mental health, mental illness, the fact that somebody takes their own life can often be very painful for communities and particularly for families. Um, and so his, his family then kind of did what um, I think many families might even do now, you know, so when somebody um, takes their own life is that they start to say well it was an accident right and then that became well no 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 he was wasn't really depressed and then that allowed it to become this rumor well he didn't really kill himself it was something else and and all evidence as I say in the book points to him having taken his own life um from the medical reports that we have the press reports that we have the reports of his family and friends and even his own words in which you know a year before or a few months before he he um jumped he was writing to people asking for money his friends are writing to him telling him not to despair, um, saying they're very concerned about him because he no longer talks to people, um, and that he just needs to sort of, you know, pull himself together and he'll he'll be fine. So I think that part of it um, is kind of just the the public memory that happens when somebody who was that respected within the black community dies suddenly under circumstances that were not suspected. Um, but I also think there's sort of a, a, a shame, and I think it's kind of a lessening now, but I think there's definitely a shame surrounding mental mental health and mental illness and um, the stigma of having to see um, activists as more than human, right? They can keep going through these things over a lifetime. So he's in the struggle for, what, 33 years? And that somehow that's sustainable. If you don't have children, so Trotter never had children, you don't have a kind of your own life. Um, he didn't, ha- his wife died and, you know, they basically were, lived very frugally and then they had no money and they kind of were a team together and then she passed away. Um, so it, it, it's a sad story, but it's also, as I say in the introduction to the book, you know, what does it, what is the cost of being an activist um, during that period or any period um, when the reality is that your momentum and your movement um um, eventually bears fruit, but it might bear fruit, you know, long after you're, you're um, alive. How would you like your book to shift our understanding of the civil rights movement more generally? And what lessons does Trotter have for the America of 2020, do you think? <laughs> um, I think, um, well, what, well, first I would like the book to challenge our notion of what black protest looks like and where pl- black protest exists. 
Um, in the United States, often we tend to get in the trap of looking at, well, it's kind of these clusters of cities that have been studied, and that's not to kind of put down other uh, historians that done wonderful work, but, you know, that, that it, uh, there's places outside of Harlem, outside of Chicago, outside of Detroit, outside of Oakland, um, outside of Atlanta, where African-American communities have been waging these battles for generations, and that those are often very radical forms of resistance that have it understudied. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would argue is that really getting into the notion that how black communities themselves conceptualize their political possibility um, beyond the 1950s and 1960s or the um, period of slavery in the 19th century, that there's all these years in between um, in which black communities are, are having these arguments um, uh, about radicalism versus accommodation um, outside of kind of these ways we look at civil rights. And then the third thing I think in terms goes into your, your final question about, you know, lessons for America in 2020. I think that um, American racism has, is, American racism and has been there, and that this notion that somehow it ends um, at, at with a victory, right, at one in one generation, and then the next generation does not have to deal with it, um, is a fallacy, right? And we know that the the course of history, the course of of protest, right, there's no evidence that it has to constantly get better, right, unless people are constantly agitating for it to get better. Um, and I think definitely Trotter is somebody who teaches that, um, both in the United States, but also just across around the world, that, you know, wherever a country or a people or a body politic is, um, there's no guarantee that that's going to be where it will be. Um, and really, the determining what direction the society goes in is the people who are actually challenging from all corners, all sides, um, criticizing the, the powers that be and, and um, forcing it to reckon with the way that it um, treats its most vulnerable. That was Kerry Greenidge. Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Munro Trotter is out now, published by Live Right. And we'll have further interviews with Kundal Prize shortlisted authors in the coming days. <laughs>